0: Hi, thanks for joining us for Worship Online. I'm Pastor Chris, the lead pastor here, and I'm so glad you decided to invest your time to be with us. We're in the middle of a series titled Experiencing New Life. Now that title has a double meaning. Obviously, we experience new life from Jesus Christ. There was once a religious leader named Nicodemus who came to Jesus and asked him how to inherit eternal life. And Jesus said the only way we can do that is to be born again. So obviously, we can get new life from Jesus by being born again. But it also is about New Life Christian Ministries. We're looking at the seven core values of new life. Those seven beliefs tell us how we're supposed to live in normal times and even in unprecedented times such as these. As you might use a screen to sift out uh, stones and impurities from soil that you're sifting for your flower garden. We use those seven beliefs to sift out what is good and what is bad and the kind of activities that we want to do as we pursue the use of our time, our talent, our treasures and touch and our life together as New Life Christian Ministries. On Easter weekend, we focused on the first core value, which is we follow Jesus. After all, Jesus is the reason that we exist Because of Jesus' life, death, resurrection, return to heaven, and sending of the Holy Spirit, our lives have been changed. And that's been true since the first Easter, right up to this year of 2020. Christians around the world have new lives, new promise, new hope, new faith because of Jesus Christ. Last week, Pastor Barry guided us through our second core value. We love each other. So today what we're going to do is turn to a core value that has set new life apart ever since our first worship service on April 8th, 2001. Here it is. We care for the lost. If you're thinking, wait a minute, doesn't every church care for the lost? The short answer to that question is no. Not every church does care for the lost. Some churches care primarily for those who have been found, those who have invested the most time or who given the most money. But as William Temple, who was the Archbishop of Canterbury in the early 1900s, put it, the church is the only institution that exists primarily for the benefit of those who are not its members. When Nancy and I envisioned new life as a church, we saw it as a church for those who had never been to church, or maybe those who had given up on church as usual. Which is why back in 2001 in western Pennsylvania, we decided that our worship services would be indigenous, meaning that we would wear the clothes that people in the community wore, that we would speak the language they spoke, that we would use the technology and the music of the culture in which we were living. Now, many churches do that these days, but back in 2001 in western Pennsylvania, that was considered unusual, maybe even unwise. But our goal wasn't to attract people who already attended church. We wanted people who might feel uncomfortable if they had to dress up or if they had to know specific religious language or maybe sing hymns that were, uh, had music written in the 1700s and 1800s to feel a little more at ease when they first entered one of our church services as a guest. I wanted to be more, I wanted to be sure that when I offended people with the message of Jesus, and and please understand, the message of Jesus is offensive at certain points. Jesus offended a lot of people. That's why they crucified him. But I wanted to make sure that when I offended people with the gospel, with the good news of Jesus, that they understood I was offending them with Jesus' words, not with some biblical mumbo-jumbo or theological language that they couldn't understand. So why would we plant a church with a core value We care for the lost. Why would William Temple say that the church exists primarily for those who aren't yet members? Well, because Jesus said it first. And today's take-home point is going to help us see that. If you're new today, again, welcome. And and remember, we created this church for you. If you're unchurched, if you've not been to church for a long time, the reason that we exist is for your benefit. And so the take-home point, because that probably is... Again, terminology you don't understand. It simply means it's the point that comes from Scripture that we're going to glean from the, the, the truth of Scripture and apply in our lives in the week ahead. So here it is. God places the highest value on His lost children, and we must too. God places the highest value on His lost children, and we must too. Now, Christians are known for arguing among each other about things that really don't matter to unchurched people. For example... Some Christians are going to take offense that I use the word lost, referring to people, because they know that people might get offended if we called them lost. But those aren't, that isn't my term, it's Jesus' term. Jesus called people who didn't know him lost. It wasn't meant to be an offensive term, it's just a descriptive term. In the same way, some people who are Christians will be offended that I called people who don't yet know Jesus as Savior and Lord God's children. They say that nobody's a child of God until they've trusted Jesus as Savior and Lord. But once again, I didn't make that up. It's a major point in a story that we're going to read today that Jesus told to the people of his own day. In fact, we're going to look at three stories that Jesus told about lost things that become found, or at least the hope is that they become found. Before we go there, which we're going to find those stories in Luke chapter 15, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your goodness and love. We thank you so much that you love every one of us, every person on this planet, every person watching online right now. God, we pray that your Holy Spirit will speak to each of us, wherever we are in our life right now, that you will speak to us by these stories that Jesus told and that we will see how much you love us and that we are your children and that you want us to be found so that we can help others who are lost to come to to know you and be found as well. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Luke's gospel is one of four accounts of Jesus' life we find in the Bible. And in Luke chapter 15, which I love so much, because it tells us how much God loves every single one of us. In fact, I want to, as we start into this story, before we get into it, I want to make a point. Some people think God only likes certain kinds of people. Some people think that God only likes certain kinds of people. And the funny thing is, people who think that fall mainly into two categories. People who think that God only likes people like them, and people think God only likes people not like them. Jesus put that idea to rest. In fact, Luke tells us about how he did that, even in setting the context for the stories that Jesus told in Luke chapter 15. Let's look at that context. We find it in Luke 15, verses 1 to 3. Tax collectors and other notorious sinners often came to listen to Jesus teach. This made the Pharisees and teachers of religious law complain that he was associating with such sinful people, even eating with them. So Jesus told them this story. We live in a culture which, on the surface, seems to think that everybody is equal. And we would say that we, would, you know, we wouldn't call people sinners or saints. We wouldn't, we wouldn't call them bad or good. We see everybody as as being okay, whatever situation they're in. In fact, when we hear of a Pharisee who condemns somebody, a tax collector, because they're different, we get a little self-righteous. But all we really have to do is listen to a capitalist talking about a socialist or a liberal talking about a conservative or people of certain ethnicities talking about, you get the idea. We see that maybe we're not really as open-minded and as as egalitarian as we all would like to think we are. Jesus wanted to show the Pharisees and the other religious leaders how much God loves all his children. And so that's why he told this story. If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them gets lost, what will he do? Won't he leave the 99 others in the wilderness and go to search for the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he will joyfully carry it home on his shoulders. When he arrives, he will call together his friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me because I have found my lost sheep. In the same way, there is more joy in heaven over one lost sinner who repents and returns to God than over 99 others who are righteous and haven't strayed away. The sheep in the story represent people. We have a hundred people in a group, which we wouldn't really be doing right now, would we? Um, but that's a, that's a little tangent. Uh, hopefully we'll be able to get 100 people together in a group again soon. Anyway, one of those, lo- those hundred people gets lost. As the Pharisees, the teachers of the law and tax collectors listen to this story, they probably put themselves into the story. Maybe you did the same thing as you were listening to the story yourself. If they hadn't figured it out by the end of the story, Jesus told them who everybody was. The shepherd was God. The 99 who were still in the flock were the Pharisees. At least the Pharisees would have thought that. And certainly the lost sheep was the tax collector, the one who was a sinner, who was was lost. And you say, well, Jesus didn't say that. Well, yes, he did. At the very end of the story, he said, in the same way, just like a shepherd who loses his sheep, it says that God rejoices, and so do all the angels in heaven when one lost person returns and is found. Heaven rejoices when a lost person is found. So not many of us raise sheep these days, so let's update the story a little bit. So there was a man who owned a company, And that company had 100 employees, and one of them was exposed to the coronavirus. He thought, what am I going to do? I have 99 workers who haven't yet been exposed. If I go visit the one, and then I bring him back, I risk the other 99. But if I don't go, then that one loss might be lost forever. So what is a business owner to do in that situation? Well, we don't know if he's a business owner. But we do know if he's Jesus, if he's Jesus, he goes after that lost one. Amazing, isn't it? Why would Jesus risk the other 99 for the sake of the one? Because, I mean, if we go back to the sheep analogy, when Jesus goes looking for the one, do you think the 99 are going to stay in the field? Aren't they going to wander off? Isn't there a potential that they all are lost by the time Jesus comes back? You see, it makes no sense to us to go looking for the one. Let's go back to our coronavirus illustration. I mean, it's why we have social distance for the last month and a half. It's why we stand six feet away from each other when we get in groups. It's why we wear masks when we go out in public. We want to protect the 99. And please hear what I'm saying. It makes sense to protect the 99 unless you have unconditional love for the one the Pharisees never did understand why Jesus ate with tax collectors and sinners. They never understood why Jesus valued them, why he ate with them. You see, the Pharisees had a lot of thems out there. There were the Pharisees, us, but most people were them. It was the Pharisees that God loved. And what they never understood, it's such an important thing, the Pharisees never understood that to God, each one of us is to be t- intended to be part of every one of us. Each one of us is intended to be part of every one of us. God loves you as if there were only one of you, only one person in the entire world. If you're a Pharisee or if you're one of the 99 already in the flock, it doesn't matter. God loves you. It's just crazy to think about that, that God loves each one of us as if there was only one of us. Jesus knew that neither the Pharisees nor the tax collectors would get it with one story, so he continued with a new one. Or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one won't she light a lamp and sweep the entire house and search carefully until she finds it and when she finds it she will call in her friends and neighbors and say rejoice with me because i have found my lost coin in the same way there is joy in the presence of god's angels when even one sinner repents the story isn't as direct as the first one people were familiar with god referring to himself as a sh- shepherd and people as sheep after all david had made that one famous through psalm 23 but this time god is represented by a woman which is a very radical concept back in jesus day the pharisees and those already part of god's family would have been the nine coins who were in the in the purse or in the in the box that were were not lost And of course, the tax collectors and sinners, they would have been that one lost coin. But the woman finds her lost coin, and she rejoices with her friends. And Jesus tells us it's the same rejoicing that takes place in heaven when that one lost one is found, as we heard about when the one sheep was found. Jesus is making it so clear that when one lost person gets found, it's a cause of major rejoicing. So let's think about something. Both The lost sheep and the lost coin were originally part of the larger group. One of the classic truths of orthodox or approved theology in the church is that we were all born separated from God. We were all lost. That's the word, where the word lost comes from. We're separated from God. We're all often, you know, we're that lost sheep, that lost coin. All of us are. That's how we start out. The tax collectors and sinners would probably have identified themselves that way immediately but not the Pharisees. That's why Jesus told a third story. Here it goes. To illustrate the point further, Jesus told them this story. A man had two sons. The younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. So his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. A few days later, this younger son packed all his belongings and moved to a distant land. And there he wasted all his money in wild living. About the time his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land, and he began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him, and the man sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. The young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him, but no one gave him anything. At this point, the tax collectors and sinners might have been thinking, I knew it. There's a limit to God's willingness to go after the lost, This lost son, who sounds so much like me, he's dead. This story does not end well. The Pharisees would have been thinking, finally, this teacher finally gets it. There's a point and a limit to God's love for people, and this son certainly deserves to end up dead. They're feeding those pigs. This son is truly lost. So imagine everyone's surprise as Jesus continued. When he finally came to his senses, that is, the son finally came to his senses, he said to himself, at home, even the hired servants have food enough to spare, and here I am dying of hunger. I will go home to my father and say, father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. The son knew he had no hope of being accepted back as a son. He had forfeited his place in the family, but his father was a righteous man. Perhaps the father would look at him and accept him back as a servant. Have you ever been in that place? Are you in that place right now? Looking at God, you say, oh, he is so righteous. He could never love me. He could never accept me. I've been so bad. How would he ever forgive me or accept me back into the family if I've ever even been part of the family in the first place? That's why I love Luke 15 so much. Look how Jesus continues the story. So he returned home to his father. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. Filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. While the son was a long way off, the father saw him. He'd been waiting for his son to return. He'd been looking down that road for weeks and weeks and months and months, maybe years. And finally, he sees his son coming, and he runs out, and he greets his son. And the Pharisees would have been extremely upset. The tax collectors, the other sinners, they would have had a glimmer of hope in their eyes. Do you see what's happening? The father who represents God is chasing after his lost son. Up to this point, he wasn't like the shepherd or the woman who went searching for what was lost. The the father at this point had just simply been waiting and waiting And waiting, he hadn't seemingly done anything to search for his son. But as soon as he saw his son coming on the horizon, he ran to greet him. The son doesn't realize what's going on yet, so he starts into his speech. His son said to him, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. And the Pharisees would have been nodding their heads in agreement. That's right, you better believe you aren't worthy of being called a son. The tax collectors would have agreed too. This son had forfeited his right to be a son. But this is where we see the extravagant, prodigal love of God in the father's response. But his father said to the servants, Quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet. And kill the calf we have been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast. For this son of mine was dead and now has returned to life. He was lost, but now he is found. So the party began. Yes. If you've ever wandered far from God, if you're dance, you, you have to be dancing in your heart right now. The son's reward, think about it. I put it in quotes: the son's reward for wasting one-third of his father's wealth, full acceptance back into the family, and a party. It's not fair. Let me say that again. It's not fair. And that's why I love it so much. Because if God is fair, I'm dead. And if God is fair, you're dead too. But not everyone sees it that way. Jesus finished this story by giving the Pharisees one final chance to see where they stood with the Father and how they could be accepted too. We read Meanwhile, the older son was in the fields working. When he returned home, he heard music and dancing in the house. And he asked one of the servants what was going on. Your brother is back, he was told. And your father has killed the fattened calf. We are celebrating because of his safe return. The older brother was angry and he wouldn't go in. His father came out and begged him. But he replied, all these years I've slaved for you and never once refused to do a single thing you told me to. And in all that time you never gave me even one young goat for a feast with my friends. Yet when this son of yours comes back after squandering your money on prostitutes, you celebrate by killing the fattened calf. If you're agreeing with the older brother right now, it only means that you've been part of the family so long that you've started to assume that you earned your place in the family. The Pharisees would have been nodding their heads in agreement with the older brother. But Jesus ended the story with a surprising twist. His father said to him, look, dear son, you have always been stayed with me, and everything I have is yours. We had to celebrate this happy day, for your brother was dead and has come back to life he was lost but now he is found the older brother referred to his younger brother as this son of yours the father said your brother was dead and has come back to life he was lost but now he is found that's why we care for the lost because they are our brothers and sisters. They belong to the family. How easy it is for us who have been part of the family for a long time to see people who are far from God and say, those sons and daughters of God, not my brothers and sisters, but they are our brothers and sisters. The story's ending leaves us with so many questions, doesn't it? Did the older brother ever go into the party? Did the younger brother get up in the morning and go out into the fields and work as a true son would have done? Does the father really love all his children? Why did he wait for the younger son to come back home before welcoming him back? Why didn't he go look for his son if he loved him so much? And here's perhaps the most important question. Who are you in this story? Who are you in this story? I've asked that question many times to hundreds of people over the years. And most people who have heard my question have said, I'm the older brother. That's because I live most of my time and most of my life with church people. But some people, many people actually have said, well, I'm the younger brother because I've lived far from God. I've wandered away from him before coming to myself and being welcomed home by the father in his waiting arms. At various times in my own life, I have been the younger brother And I have been the older brother. These days, I identify most with the father in the story. Now, if you're thinking, Chris, you see yourself as God, not at all. I don't see myself as God, but I do see myself as a representative of the father, as one who is called to seek the lost and welcome back those who come to join the party, whether they're currently self-righteous or broken. I've been following Jesus for more than 50 years. If I don't have some of the Father's heart by now, I never will. Jesus didn't tell these stories so we would think how amazing God's love is for everyone. He also told them so we will go looking for the lost sheep and the lost coins. So we will be welcoming back our brothers and sisters who have strayed away from home when they return. Here's our next step today. I will search for one of God's lost children daily. I will search for one of God's lost children daily. That's a powerful next step. It means that we are going to take the position of the shepherd, of the woman, of the father. We are going to take the position of the one who knows the value of every single person. If you're still lost, you're watching with us today, and you would say, I'm I'm still lost. Why not? return to the Father right now. Say this, Heavenly Father, I admit I've been lost. I'm coming back to you right now. Thank you for welcoming me home. I trust your Son, Jesus, Savior and Lord. Fill me with your Holy Spirit so I can live as part of your family today and always. Amen. If you need to pray that prayer for the very first time, or maybe you need to say, I've been far from the The Father, I once was close, but I've I've wandered away and I need to come back again. Maybe you need to pray that prayer with me as well. And remember this, when we say that we're trusting Jesus as Savior and Lord, Savior simply means that Jesus has rescued us from sin and death. And Lord means that He is our owner. He gets to tell us what to do with our lives. If you're ready to do that right now, again, whether it's for the first time or a recommitment to living life with the Father, would you pray with me right now? Heavenly Father, I admit I've been lost. I'm coming back to you right now. Thank you for welcome, welcoming me home. I trust your Son Jesus as Savior and Lord. Fill me with your Holy Spirit so I can live as part of your family today and always. Amen. If you just move from lost to found, praise God. If you've been part of the family for weeks, months, years, even decades, well, then let's put our hearts to searching for those who are lost, brothers and sisters who have strayed away. And when they come back, let's welcome them with open arms, just as our Heavenly Father did. And just as our Heavenly Father welcomes everyone who comes home. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that whether we have been in the fold for years or whether we're that lost sheep today, whether we've been the coin that never dropped out of the bag or the box, or whether we're the lost one, God, whether we are the son who strayed away and wasted your resources, or whether we're that self-righteous son who thinks that we've been doing what you wanted us to do all these years and won't join the party, God, today I pray that you will move our hearts. And God, if our heart is like your heart, we already know you love us, beyond understanding, and we know that we have a calling to reach out to our lost brothers and sisters and to welcome them home. God, fill us all with your Holy Spirit. Move us from where we are to where we need to be so that you can be glorified and so that each one of us truly does become every one of us in the family of the living God who we praise and who we give glory to today. We ask this prayer in Jesus' name, amen.